You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm kind of ruining the fact that this is an audio-only format that we're recording this in, Wade, because it looks like I put on all this old-age makeup for nothing. You know, Kevin, it's pretty crazy. I haven't had a haircut in some time, and so I actually coned mine over my face, so it made me look 10 years younger. (laughs) That sounds like a great strategy. Today in the episode, we're reviewing the new film from Josh Trank, the Al Capone biopic, Capone. We'll also be sharing some listener feedback and some new streaming recommendations for your home viewing pleasure on this episode, episode 248 of Seeing and Believing. Do you know what the difference is between Adolf Hitler and Al Capone? Hitler's dead. Capone lives like a king in Florida. He has full-blown dementia. I have reason to believe it could all be an elaborate act. What's this about? We have information that your client may have tucked away a very large sum of money. You can drop the act now. You got goons walking around. Yes, this is episode 248 of Seeing and Believing. And Kevin, I think we got to talk a little bit about Tom Hardy. Who has the best Tom Hardy voice? Is that Al Capone or is that Bane? I'm not sure. I think that nothing really tops his slightly indecipherable North England accent. Is that what that is? A Scottish accent? (laughs) I don't think anyone really knows, but I think we can all agree that it's... It was necessary. We needed Bane with that voice. <laughs> no, I I love I love trying to sound like Bane, even though I'm not very good at it. It's it's just it's the it's a treasure. And one of the reasons why I do like The Dark Knight Rises. Listeners, for the first time in about two months, Kevin and I are reviewing a new release. On this week's episode of Seeing and Believing, we are tackling the Al Capone biopic from writer-director Josh Trank. Recording the final year in the life of one of our nation's most notorious gangsters, Trank's Capone, formerly known as Fonzo, watches a cigar-chewing Tom Hardy chew up scenery in a recreated version of Capone's gorgeous Florida home. As Al Capone's body slowly wastes away due to a bout with syphilis, he's forced to reckon with his past, which often crops up in the form of frightening visions and dreams. Kevin, this is somewhat of an unconventional biopic. There are no traditional flashbacks, and most of the film is regulated to Capone's estate. Did you find that this frame benefited the overall story that Trank is trying to tell, or do you believe it hindered what many would call the fantastical story that is Al Capone's life. (laughs) Well, I I am going to say uh, that I think that Josh Trank deserves brownie points for taking a route with the biopic that is not convention with with this one. I I do like that this isn't sort of the the standard, you know, gangster in old age looks back over his life, which we kind of see as a series of flashbacks 
as a straightforward beginning to end narrative within that framing device. I think Trank's decision to frame it more as kind of maybe the disintegration of Capone's mind as he looks back over his past is is interesting and had a lot of potential. I don't think that in the end it actually works in the slightest. I feel a little bit bummed actually to to be honest. This is the first, you know, new release we've reviewed in a really long time on the show and so I was really hoping we could start off with the bang but I don't know, wait, this is not a very good movie. And I, <laughs> I I found it to be a huge letdown. Yeah, you know, I I do like you. I appreciate Trank's focus here. And I think there's something fascinating about making a story about Al Capone's life and not showing us any flashbacks. And instead, we kind of learn about what he's done through conversations and these strange, wild, fantastical dreams. Some of them are fairly effective. And I felt like the the, the film, I don't know, it never managed to find the right pace and the right tone. It's as if it wanted to be Fonzo, right? It wanted to be kind of bonkers. It wanted to kind of be nutso. But there were large stretches of the film that just felt mundane and frankly, just kind of uninteresting. And then when we do get some of those nutso scenes, they feel as if they're stripped of their meaning. And I was trying to put my finger on what kind of story this is. So so what is this movie about? Uh, is it about the American dream? Is it a morality tale? Is it a story about a father and son? And it seems to cherry pick those ideas from a number of different great mob movies. So The Godfather is kind of about the American dream, you could say that. Uh, Goodfellas is a morality tale. Uh, Same thing with The Irishman. The Road to Perdition is a father-son tale. But this leaves kind of all those ideas on the table and just, I don't know, references those ideas? references sections of his life and then that's kind of it i mean obviously on the nose he's his body's falling apart his mind is falling apart and there's this connection okay what he's done has led to this sure so that's kind of an ethical idea uh, but i i didn't feel like it was all that examined and it certainly wasn't all that effective yeah this film becomes taxing after a while, I think is the best way to describe it. There's just so, there, there's such gonzo stuff going on in the film, but it doesn't feel like Trank really finds a way to make it have any meaning, like you said. It does feel like a lot of grotesquerie for grotesquerie's sake, and it became, uh, it, it tried my patience after a little while, which isn't to say that I don't think that Trank had no purpose for this movie. I think he does. If there's a th- thesis statement for this movie. It's probably in a line of dialogue from one of the FBI agents who uh, surveils Capone throughout the movie. Towards the end of the film, this, this FBI agent is talking to his superior about Capone, and he says, a man who spends his entire life lying to people keeps the truth inside, and it rots there. And I think that's kind of what this movie is trying to evoke is giving us a portrait of a, of a person who has so alienated himself from virtue, who has spent his entire life paranoid and distrustful of those around him, never really gives himself to anyone. 
uh, finally breaking down at the end of his life and being completely, utterly isolated because of it. That's kind of the portrait that Trank is going for here. The problem is that he never really lets us into what it feels like to be in that sort of headspace. You know, you think of somebody like uh, Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, who is another, you know, aging, very famous person who's kind of watching the rest of the world pass her by, and her her fame has kind of corroded her soul to a certain extent. There's a part of her that can't really deal with not being on top of the world anymore, and it twists her in very very sad, very tragic, uh, very disturbing ways. And I think that that film does a really good job at both recognizing how grotesque in some ways Norma Desmond is as a person, but also really helps the audience come to understand what it's like, what that experience is like for her. And that's something that Capone never really does. There's just so much uh, craziness on display on the screen. There, there's whole, you know, dozens and dozens of minutes on end that we spent in the in flashback sequences or hallucinations that, okay, maybe give us a sense of maybe what it was like to be Capone, but doesn't give us any path into what it's like for him now to kind of be physically decaying literally i mean the the makeup job on tom hardy in this movie makes him look like you know some sort of frankenstein's monster he is literally rotting from the inside out and trank really tries to evoke that by having these hallucinatory sequences but they don't really lead to anything that is kind of dead end and like i said grotesquery there's a scene where uh, a friend who he's hallucinating cuts out his eyes and places the eyeballs on Capone's chest and it's it's horrifying and then the scene just kind of moves on and you don't really get any sense for what the meaning of that hallucination is why Trank felt it necessary to di- display it in such gory detail what how it affects Capone in the days after that experience it just it moves on to the next scene and it's almost like that that scene is just completely forgotten and I think that that's kind of the way this film works as a whole, is it's just a series of hallucinations, sometimes extremely gory, disturbing ones, that don't end up adding up to anything. Well, and, and there's one thing to have a, a thesis statement in the film, and this this film does that, and it, it underlines it by showing Capone's body fall apart, but there's something about lacking the purpose to flesh that out to use a pun to visualize that across the movie through the story and you mentioned there are a number of dead ends and we get this sort of big moment at the end of the movie and i don't want to spoil it but but there's a lot of action and instead of walking away from that scene and saying oh that is a man who is trying to reclaim some agency in his life or that is a man who has distrusted so many people that the distrust causes him to lash out against people who are taking care of him. Instead, we say, oh, let's well, just his disease, his body's just falling apart and he's doing something very strange and he has the means to fulfill this sort of strange desire. And, and it is, it, it's stripped of, 
of purpose and it's stripped of meaning. And I like what you said, and I'll, I'll say it again, a dead end. And I think that's, that's what makes this film disappointing for me. There are a number of scenes that I thought were, that worked well. Uh, there's one where Tom Hardy is watching The Wizard of Oz and he stands up in front of the projector and he begins to sing along with the movie, which visually is arresting. And there's, there seems to be something there in that scene, something kind of tangible we can take away. There's another flashback that he has or a hallucination that he has uh, where he comes into a party and you can tell that the people are dressed as if this party is taking place in the 1920s and a singer is singing to him. And in terms of pure imagery, uh, this says something about his him trying to grapple with his past and then it's kind of over and it takes a weird turn that just doesn't make much sense throughout that entire ordeal. Uh, I I don't want to say that Tom Hardy gives us a good performance, but he does offer a performance and I <laughs> I don't hate him here because I feel like he's really he's 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 giving us his best. I just I wonder if you either you either change the direction or you let Tom Hardy be Nicolas Cage. You know, you you let him just kind of go off the chain. And I I, I think some people are going to hate his performance. I like I said I don't I don't hate it. I just don't know if it was pushed in the right direction. Yeah, I I'm pretty mixed on Hardy's performance here. I do think that I mean it's interesting enough. It, it's hard to know whether he's really just going for broke on the the technical aspects of his performance, you know, hunching and squinting and doing that that weird high-pitched growl mutter that he's doing as Capone. Like it it's all a lot of uh flash, I guess. And it's hard to tell whether the fact that the performance ends up feeling insubstantial is because he's just laying it on too thick and there's not really any sort of understanding uh, of the psychology of Capone informing that performance or whether it's just that he's struggling with an extremely underwritten part and is doing his best to invest some life into what's really kind of half-baked on the page. I mean, who... Who can tell for sure? I I just I found that after a while I be I began to grow impatient with his performance. In that it just it just I I needed something to hold on to. I needed something to make this Capone feel like a real person to me, and it ended up not really doing that for me. And I think that I'm leaning more towards the fact that, or more towards the idea that. It was probably just underwritten because the other characters in this movie also feel a little bit underwritten. The family that's surrounding Capone, the doctor and the the FBI agents, all of them kind of feel like half sketches. Linda Cardellini as uh, Capone's mm-hmm. wife, May. Mm-hmm. I love Linda Cardellini as an actress. I think she, I would love to see her in more stuff. It seems like so often she gets stuck in, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the devoted wife role. I think uh-huh. of her... Her performance in Green Book, which was another yeah. one of these devoted wife roles that she's she really deserves better than that. And I do think that there's maybe kind of 
a glimmer of something interesting in May, how you get the sense that she's a woman who has spent her entire marriage to Capone kind of just dealing with him being essentially a monster, like just somebody who doesn't really invest himself into their marriage, who doesn't really uh, care for her in the way that perhaps she wants to be cared for. And yet she finds a measure of peace in taking taking care of him here at the end of his life because at least it's quiet now. At least she's the one with power in this situation. I think that's kind of an interesting idea to explore how uh, a, a person like her wouldn't stick by her husband necessarily because she loves him so much, but simply because now the tables are finally turned and she gets to uh, be the one in charge a little bit. I think that that's interesting. I think Cardellini does something with that. I don't think Trank's screenplay really follows that through in a fully satisfying way, just as he kind of doesn't follow many of the subplots through to a satisfying way, like the uh, the doctor who's kind of trying to manipulate Capone for his own selfish ends, the the son who's kind of feeling who feels a little bit sad that his father is slipping away from him, who maybe, you know, wants to communicate with him and can't really through the haze of this neurosyphilis that Capone is dealing with. They're all like stubs of interesting ideas that never flower into something fully interesting. Yes, and I I think this film this film wants to say something about a life lived the way that Al Capone lived his life. And I'm reminded, and I mentioned this earlier, of of The Irishman. And what a fantastic film. I mean, listeners know how much I enjoy that movie and how it is a tale of a man who spent his life sowing a particular seed. And at the end, he was, he was reaping a particular harvest. And the way that Scorsese does that, and maybe... Maybe it's wrong for me to compare both of these films, but The Irishman is still just so fresh for me, is is the way that he he just weaves together this life and then shows us the sadness um, that comes as a result of it. Even though De Niro's character lived to be a, you know, a ripe old age, he survived. He he somehow made it. And I was I was genuinely kind of confused about the direction of Capone. Now, obviously, like they give him a carrot and he starts kind of growling and, and they're Trank is explicitly saying, hey, he's kind of become this animal, right? Uh, but the question of he, he, he's become this animal due to a disease that he got at 15 years old, I believe they say. And he reflects back on some of his life. And obviously, we know that he was a very violent man. But where does that lead? Uh, he's confused in some of these delusions. He happens upon these violent scenes, and it clearly upsets him. But but that's kind of it. Uh, and then you mentioned the whole subplot with his son and them sort of having this reunion. And well, well, what is what does that kind of say about the film? And I think there are obvious points of like okay if you live this type of life like you're gonna you're gonna reap some uh some some terrible crops uh, but i i just don't know if the film 
had the direction to really drive that home or to even say anything other than what's on the surface is you live a bad life, bad things happen sometimes. Uh, that seems to be kind of this, this simple, straightforward answer. And, and maybe, maybe that's kind of the point. Maybe, maybe the point is just in the makeup. It's, it's just there to kind of show us a man who is deteriorating. Uh, but with films like The Irishman and Goodfellas and all these others, I, I just, it's hard to look at this one and, and think of anything much more than, okay, it's, it's Tom Hardy growling and that's kind of it. And I'm going to forget it, you know, in two days. I think a lot of it does really come down to the directing and evocative use of cinematography and editing. You think of, uh, you know, in Goodfellas, the, uh, the the opening of that trunk and everything's bathed in that red light as they're digging the hole and just looks. There, there's something about the way that Scorsese and his cinematographer shoot that scene that makes it feel infernal, like it. it the image has its own sort of emotional and uh, thematic ballast. And I think part of the problem with Gapone is that Trank, uh, working with Peter Deming, his cinematographer, everything just feels kind of flat. There's not really... It, when when Gapone is looking at looking on at this hallucination from his past where one of his lieutenants stabs a man to death, it's uh, it's a horrifying scene, and Capone is obviously horrified. But the way that it's it's shot and framed, it's not really clear. Well, I mean, like anybody standing there would be horrified to see a man get stabbed dozens of times in the neck. Like that's just that's a horrifying thing to have to watch. Why why are we seeing it though? Why did Trank feel the need to show it to us so explicitly? Uh, where like why? show it to us in this way. There's no real uh, sense for framing it or shooting it or lighting it in a way that kind of approximates that Goodfellas shot that I mentioned earlier, where it 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 acquires meaning simply by the way it's presented to the audience visually. And I think that that is something that maybe extends to the whole, to the film as a whole. There are these shots that Trank returns to over the course of the film. Uh, Capone, of course, in in his uh, mansion, had uh, like statuary. So there are all these sculptures of Julius Caesar or his lady Atlas, who Capone just threatens anybody who will even touch that sculpture. It's very important to him. And it's obvious that Trank is kind of meaning to use these sculptures as a counterpoint you know capone is you know his he's going senile in at the age of 47 his body is literally decaying while he's still alive and that's kind of juxtaposed with these pristine marble statues that will last for much much longer than capone's flesh will and so that kind of evokes questions of do do does somebody's deeds live on after them that's and that's kind of an interesting theme on on its face i think the problem is when we get all these shots of these statuaries uh you know out in capone's garden they're not they, they just feel a little bit flat like trank is pointing his camera at them and showing them to us but the way that they're edited in with the other scenes from Capone's late life, just it doesn't really feel like Trank quite has a handle on how to organize that in a way that finally makes it click and gives it meaning that the audience doesn't have to supply themselves. Yeah, and, and you've got 
the sort of ample opportunity to do that because his home uh, reflects, I guess you could say, Roman Greek uh, influences uh, in an Americanized sort of way. And uh, you could you could film it in such a way that Orson Welles films uh, Citizen Kane's house. And yet, you mentioned it is flat. If this is a movie that's going to be so on the nose that we're going to get all, all of these shots of these statues. Okay, obviously, yeah, we, we know what you're saying. Like this is, you know, you write down, oh, is this a metaphor or question mark? You've, you've got to add some sort of style to it. You've got to make it punchier you've got you've got to you've got to show your hand and say hey we know this is on the nose but stylistically we're going to drive this point home further and and that's what i i was kind of mentioning at the very beginning is this film kind of wants to be kind of nutso right and yet it's very tranquil uh when it needs to amp up and and so i think that's the 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 tone problem here Uh, you get some very violent scenes some very provocative scenes and then others are just kind of boring there there's a shot that i really did like it's a, a camera kind of hovering on the water and there are trees reflected in the water now normally because of the reflection the trees would would be upside down but the camera itself looks to be upside down and so the trees in the reflection are right side up. And I think something like that um, is uh, is a good kind of reminder and it can create atmosphere. And I was hoping for some more atmosphere um, in in this film. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Xander, Xander Dew from Citizen Kane. Give, give us something more like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the... That I took notice of that shot as well, the the shot of the reflections in the water, because it did seem a little bit sort of like, oh, this is this is an image that I wouldn't necessarily have expected, and it's interesting, and I want to kind of follow where that leads. It's like, what does it suggest? Does it add uh, some interesting texture to this movie that we're already watching? Like, what does it do? And I think the problem is that Trank doesn't really doesn't really follow up follow it up with a whole lot sort of a in isolation interesting moment that as part of the whole doesn't really uh seem like it's woven into the fabric of of the entire film and that's maybe a problem with capone as a whole is it just doesn't it feels like a collection of moments that don't really have Mm. a, a deep meaning yeah yeah, well, I, I I did mispronounce uh, the Citizen Kane house. It's, it's Xanadu, uh, which is also, you know, of course, set in, in Florida. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts on one of the first films, uh, new films that we've talked about in some time. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to come back in just a moment and we're going to chat for a bit about some of the new television shows that we've been checking out, miniseries, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it and hopefully give you something to watch as you still kind of work through quarantine. We'll be back here in just a moment.
That song is Internal by Idyllic. And Kevin, we want to take an opportunity, like we do every week, and thank our Patreon supporters. You keep the show going. If you've listened to the podcast for a little while and you're thinking about supporting us via our Patreon campaign, we would love that. We have a number of different donation levels. And one of our favorites, we talk about it pretty often, it's the what can you buy for $5 level. It's five bucks and it poses a great question. And Kevin, I wanted to ask you, uh, what could somebody buy for five bucks? Five bucks would get you uh, that blast shield helmet that Luke Skywalker wears in in the first uh, Star Wars movie where he's doing the training with a lightsaber. You know, we're all supposed to wear masks when we go out and all of this. So I feel like just as Luke Skywalker complains that with the blast shield down, he could barely even see, well, you know what? It probably also prevents harmful possibly infected droplets from reaching other people in the Millennium Falcon. So a replica of that helmet seems like a pretty good investment for five bucks in this day and age. No, that seems great. You know, somebody uh, gave me uh, just, they, they had it lying around. They, they gave me this Darth Vader, plastic Darth Vader helmet hat thing. And I keep it because the kids love to walk around on it or, or with it. <laughs> and uh, my, my joke has been, hey, would it be okay if I wear this out in public, uh, it's gotten some laughs, so I'm going to keep doing it as long as people laugh. Um, have not worn it out in public yet, um, but I do like the five dollar the the kind of what do you call it? The, you call it the shield, the shield the, helmet. The, I mean, Luke Skywalker calls it the blast shield. The blast I don't shield. really. I, I'm not a big Star Wars buff, so I don't know if there's a special technical term for it. I just call it the Blast Shield Helmet. Yeah. Uh, somebody, a listener can probably write in and correct me with the you know exact model number and maybe mm. whoever manufactured it on whatever planet. But, you know, I, I don't have that knowledge at my fingertips. Yeah. I mean, I love Star Wars. Uh, people know this. Uh, I, I don't think that that helmet will save you from a blast. Um, maybe from a fall, but who knows? Maybe there's something that Lucas knows that he's not, he's not telling us. I mean, this is a universe where the stormtroopers literally wear body armor to protect themselves from laser blasts. And they just, you know, they keel over whenever, you know, Han Solo coughs on them. So I don't really know if maybe they just kind of, maybe it's just this sort of weird cultural thing in Star Wars Mm. land where Mm. they just kind of physical objects make them feel better about yeah. being protected from laser blasts, even if there doesn't actually seem to be a, an actual benefit from it. So well, yeah. who knows? No, that's great. That's great. My, uh, my, my six-year-old Wesson, he, he was a stormtrooper for Halloween. And one of his friends, she watched Star Wars right after Halloween. And she was very upset because she said he's a, he was a bad guy. And he made it known that he was, he was Finn before he took off the costume. So he he likes the look of the stormtroopers, but he wants to be a good guy. So there is something to just the fashionable choice of that armor, even if it's not functional. Um, so I think that's important. You, I mean, you should be proud of, of those kids for having such a a deep discussion of morality in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> it sounds like they are going to be great... Uh, movie podcast hosts of their own someday oh you you can only you know you you do your best to raise them right and then you just gotta let them go and hope they become a film podcast host um 
<laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> D- does that mean they've been raised right? I don't know. Mamas, don't let your, your kids grow up to be podcast hosts. Who knows? I, I think we're pretty okay, though. I think you're doing a good job. Hey, well, I appreciate that. Listeners, I guess we'll get back to the $5 thing. You can support us via our Patreon campaign. Just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast we very much appreciate it and kevin too we also appreciate all the feedback we've received on our 2020 auteur uh series we just finished that up christopher nolan kelly reichert david fincher and last week wes anderson we got tons of feedback and we also received feedback from some individuals who didn't like where we placed certain wes anderson films yeah, well, you know, we did say on the on the Wes Anderson episode itself that he's one of those directors that everybody kind of has their own ranking and other people's rankings are just completely foolish and alien to them. You and I went back and forth between ourselves over some of our individual rankings, so it's not out of the ordinary. Uh, we did hear from Joshua Wilson. Listeners probably remember uh, Joshua from providing us that really great defense of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. On, on that episode, he laid out his view of that film's themes and meaning uh, quite ably. Unfortunately, Wade, I think you had The Life Aquatic at the very bottom. I had mine kind <laughs> of in the lower middle somewhere. And, you know, Joshua was listening. He listened to the episode and uh, he tweeted at us really quickly. He, he, he tweeted just one line, Wade. He, he tweeted, when I find out the rankings for the Life Aquatic on Sea Believe Pod, and then he just included a GIF of that scene from Lady Bird, where the the priest who's also directing the school play is sitting, you know, <laughs> backstage after the show's over and sadly saying they didn't understand it, <laughs> and apparently Joshua is that priest when he listens to our Wes Anderson episode. So, you know, you can't, you can't please them all, but thanks to Joshua for sharing his defense of that movie. And thanks to all of you listeners who, who listened to the episode. Yeah. And I will mention our podcast producer, Jonathan Clausen. He, he was a little offended at where I placed uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. It was at number and five. And rightly so. <laughs> number and five. And rightly so. And so he gave me a little bit of a thrashing. So, yeah, you can't you can't please everybody. Everybody's a critic of a critic. You know, uh, that's just how that's it goes. the way it goes. <laughs> live, live by the critic, die by the live by the criticism, die by the criticism. It's the no, way it goes. Yeah, no, and it's great. I. I, I appreciate uh, that feedback, and I'm trying to get better. Uh, Kevin, we've reached uh, the point of the show. We, we mentioned it. We've got uh, some stuff that we've been watching just kind of personally. Uh, we're not able to give a full review for, uh, but we wanted to offer some recommendations to listeners, some shows that they could check out as they're streaming. So we're doing particularly shows this week, and you have a mini series that you want to talk about and recommend to our listeners. Yeah, so uh, HBO just came out with a a new miniseries titled "The Plot Against America." It's a I, I'm about halfway through right now, and I think it's six episodes in total. But this is a miniseries based on Philip Roth's 2004 novel. That's a an alternate history. It's a 
alternate history that supposes that what if Franklin Delano Roosevelt had lost the 1940 presidential election to a campaign run by Charles A. Lindbergh, who is well known as being somebody who had certain uh, anti-Semitic or white supremacist sympathies and who many suspected, at least, of being a Nazi sympathizer. In this miniseries, they suppose that he actually defeats Roosevelt's uh, in the presidential election on the eve of World War II and what transpires from there. It centers on a Jewish family who feel as Lindbergh rises to power. They feel the country that they thought they knew shifting around them and exposing some, some bigotry and some ugliness that they never really wanted to believe was there before. So it's very timely, uh, very interesting series. It's uh, written by uh, David Simon and Ed Burns, which are who are probably best known for working on the HBO series The Wire, which is an excellent series. Highly recommend that one as well. But The Plot Against America is currently streaming on HBO service. You can also see it on Amazon Prime if you have the HBO subscription on there. And uh, yeah, I really like it. It's extremely fascinating and uh, harrowing in its own special way as well. Very highly recommended. I, I've heard about that, and uh, I, I need to check it out. I need to get some time to, to do that. But that's a that's a really good pick. And and did you say how many how many episodes make up this miniseries? Uh, six in total, I believe. Six in total. Okay. Well, that's 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 not bad. And they're what uh, maybe hour each. Yeah, an hour an hour a piece. It's yeah. pretty manageable. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Uh, so the show I'm actually bringing is a little bit lighter. Uh, it's a show that is uh, was recently released on Disney Plus. It's called Prop Culture, and it's hosted by Dan Lanigan. And Dan is an individual who collects uh, movie memorabilia and movie props. And in each episode in this series, this first season, uh, he actually goes through, he chooses a movie for, for, for each episode, and he looks at some of the remaining props for those uh, films. And so he looks at uh, films like Mary Poppins and the original Tron. And what's fascinating is with many of these older films, uh, for example, Mary Poppins, when props were used, they weren't necessarily seen as all that valuable. And so people just kind of got rid of them or gave them away. Maybe they got put in a closet somewhere. And it's only later, as these films have become classics, uh, that people want a piece of that movie history. And so uh, in Mary Poppins, he searches for uh, her her bag, and he searches for some of the costumes that are used. And what I appreciate about this television show is that uh, Dan goes to the individuals who have made these items, uh, designers uh, or people who've utilized these items, choreographers, uh, even actors, and he brings them what they created or what they used or what they wore with these films. And it's fascinating the emotions that people experience when they meet up uh, with their past. And in the Mary Poppins episode, there's one scene where he visits uh, Tony Walton and he designed the costumes for Mary Poppins. And he pulls out 
Julie Andrews's uh, costume. And at the time, uh, Walton was was married to Julie Andrews, and they had a young child. And so there are pictures behind the scenes where Andrews is uh, uh, with uh, Walton, and they're holding uh, their their small child. And he uh, he looks at the costume, obviously becomes kind of emotional, and then he he goes over, and the costume is is set up, and he says, "I, I just want to give this." A hug. I want to. I want to remember this time. And he gives the costume, this Mary Poppins costume, a hug. And it's, uh, it's just really kind of touching. And it also shows you that when these movies are made, we we often think about the director, uh, we think about the actors, but there are so many talented individuals in the background. There's one episode where uh, we get to see some of the models from Pirates of the Caribbean, and we get to see the black. Pearl, uh, this model. And it's just, it's wonderful because model making is becoming more and more a, a dying art. And so it's great to be able, uh, it's great to be able to, uh, see that. And then when they look at some of the props in the Honey I Shrunk the Kids episode, um, we actually get to talk to Mick Moranis, which is, which is kind of interesting. So if you want something a little lighter, something kind of just, uh, check out, uh, I would go ahead and, and head on over to, uh, Disney Plus and it's called Prop Culture. So it's a lot of fun. You, you know, like I've, resisted Disney Plus for for my own reasons, but I have to say that the the thing that does tempt me the most about the service isn't the uh, the movies so much as the stuff like the what you just shared way like the kind of I'm really interested in the behind the scenes stuff and the ability to go back behind the scenes of you know a theme park or maybe some of the props of movies and really kind of digging into the technical aspects of how this is all put together and how the movie magic actually happens and all the hard work that goes into that so that sounds really interesting yeah it's great and and i i think i might have mentioned it but the imagineering story is uh, really fantastic and i might even go watch it again it's just it's it's really uh it's really interesting to see the development of of what we know as the theme park and how movies uh actually influence that that you would go into a theme park and and actually go into another world like you are inside of a movie not just a movie set but an actual movie and just to to notice some of those uh, distinctions there. It's it, it's fascinating. But yeah, some of those behind the scenes things are are, are great. There is a show uh, that goes behind the scenes of The Mandalorian, and I, I want to check that out. And then there's also, I haven't done it yet, but there's also a documentary on The Rise of Skywalker. So it, some people might remember uh, the the uh, documentary uh, for the uh, the last jedi that kind of chronicles ryan johnson's uh, you know making of this film the director and the jedi and uh, they made one behind the scenes for uh, the rise of skywalker i was pretty cold on the film but i i really want to go back because it does help you to kind of realize like there's a lot that goes into these movies whether we like them or not a lot of talented people kind of working behind the scenes so you get some of that stuff on disney plus and, and um, of course you know you get all those classics uh and for people with kids, that probably makes the purchase a little bit easier. Well, listeners, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Give us a star rating and review if you can on iTunes. And if you'd like to shoot us a word, make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod.com. 
at cbeliefpod or seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. I'm Wade Beard and my co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.